You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to the Gospel of Mark, specifically chapter 3, and we're going to read our passage for this morning, which begins in verse 7. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because, the crowd, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For they had healed, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13 says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave, gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we are in this series in the Gospel of Mark, and taking our time slowly going through this, and um, because we're taking our time, it's good to remind ourselves where we are at and and what's the point even of doing this. And most of you would know if you're going to go on a a trip nowadays, or maybe not most of you, if you know your way, you're not going to do this, but most of us use Google Maps of some sort or, you know, a Maps app before that it was GPS. I can still remember, this is dating myself a little bit, I used to get nervous for road trips because I I really wanted to know where to go, especially if we were going through some cities or something. Um, the night before, I wouldn't sleep well because I knew, I was like, I don't want to take any wrong turns. I don't want to get sucked off into some place where I don't know where I'm going. So I would consult a paper map. Have you ever seen one of those? You know, like a paper map that you unfold and maybe you even mark with a marker where you're going. And I would kind of study that thing to know where it is that we are headed to. And so with a book like the Gospel of Mark, and and with any book really in particular, it's good to be reminded of like, what's the point? How do we find our way in this thing? Especially when we're taking um, our journey through Mark at the pace that we are taking. And so just for like context, just to kind of like look back and be able to see the whole map in one picture here, we're looking really at Mark to watch the life of Jesus. That's really what we're doing. We want to see, like, what does Jesus' life look like? 
what things can we learn from Jesus? And so if you're sitting here and you're a Christian or if you call yourself a Christ follower or you're a believer in Jesus, however you put it, the goal for this series is to look at the life of Jesus and say, okay, if he's Lord, if he really is who he says he is, then what does it look like for me to actually follow him, to be a follower of Jesus? Am I actually doing that? And if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian or maybe you're not a Christian at all and you're, you're totally welcome here because of that, we hope that you as well will look at the life of Jesus and say, okay, who is this person who says he's the savior of the world, who says he's the son of man? What, like who says that first of all? And then what am I supposed to do with his life? So that's kind of what we're doing as we're looking at the life of Jesus. We're we're watching him in a sense. And we're wanting to be shaped and formed by his life so that our lives actually are changed in the process as we look at him. And so here we come to Mark chapter 3 in verse 7 there. And we're brought into another moment where we almost see like a day in the life of Jesus. I don't know if you've seen those books before. They used, to, they used to have these books where it was like a day in the life of whatever. And you could see the photographs of all these people that, you know, this is what their day looked like. These are all the things that they were doing. You could kind of journey with them. That's what we're doing in this little passage here. We see again that Jesus in his day-to-day life in ministry is busy. Man, he is attracting people from all over the place. Look at the text again. It says, I won't go through the list, but there's a list of all kinds of names of locations. And basically what Mark is saying is people were coming from everywhere. Okay, people were coming from everywhere. Mark says they were coming from the south. So they were coming from Jerusalem and Idumea. Okay, Jerusalem is in kind of the southern central part of Israel. And then Idumea is in the total south region. And then he says they're also coming from Tyre and Sidon, which is like the north and the coast side of Israel, still there to this day. So they're coming from that side as well. And then it also says that they came from the east across the Jordan. So basically Mark is saying, here's what's happening. They are hearing about Jesus and what he's doing, and they are coming from everywhere. It's not just religious regions like Jerusalem. It's not just the, um, you know, where the hicks come from in the north, okay, literally, look it up. Um, It's from all these different locations. They are all coming and they want to see, and it says that a, a crowd was gathered around them, okay? And what is it that they're coming for? What is it that they want? What they want actually is a piece of Jesus, they, they, they're not coming there, okay, they're not coming like believing that he is the Messiah. They're not coming there like wanting to like repent and, and follow him. What they're coming for is stuff. What they're coming for is some sort of something from Jesus. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, um, the great crowd heard all that he was doing and they came to him. Sorry, that's verse 8, end of verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So they heard everything that was happening. So picture it this way, okay? So someone in your village, you're, you're living in Sidon or you're living in the region of Idumea and suddenly like you hear, okay, there was John who was in our town 
had a home, lived like two blocks away from me. Then he got some sort of like skin issue. We're not sure if it was like leprosy or what it was, but John, out of the village, man. He is put out because he's ceremonially unclean. Now, John went to the north of Israel and somehow got in touch with this new rabbi who's got this teaching, and John is healed. Leprosy, gone. Skin, gone. He's back. You can talk to him. He's back two blocks away around the corner. He's there. Wouldn't you think everybody would be like, let's check this out. We got Aunt Sally who's got a bad knee. We got Uncle Bob who's got this. You know, suddenly it's like everybody go because we're hearing that the things that this new rabbi is doing are amazing. There is healings. And that's what's happening to Jesus. People are hearing about what's going on. And they're maybe even like first-hand testimonies seeing the, the healings that Jesus has done. And so they're like, we're going. We're going to check this guy out and we are going to hear him. And so... The only ones that we really see who understand who Jesus is, is the demons. If you look at verse 11, it says that they are the ones who actually know what's going on and Jesus tells them to be silent. They are the ones that know exactly who Jesus is, what his purposes are, and he's like, don't tell anybody. And it's a phenomenon that is actually not too different from our day still today depending on who you talk to, but there are a lot of people that are still attracted to Jesus. And I don't know if you've met people like this. I've met people, you know, when we were uh, living overseas, I've met, you know, Muslims who think Jesus is a great prophet. I've met people who would have been like in this animist kind of pagan category, and when they hear about Jesus, they're like, wow, Jesus is amazing. He sounds like a great guy. I've known people who would categorize them as secularists, and they're like, you know what? I don't really like Christians, but Jesus... He sounds good to me. And so this idea of like being attracted to Jesus is not something that's new. It happened when Jesus was around, happened in his day-to-day life, but it also still happens today that people are attracted to Jesus. And I will even say for myself, the question is, what are they attracted to? And even for myself, what am I attracted to in Jesus? Am I, in subtle ways, like the crowds that came to Jesus, I really want Jesus just to like give me some stuff or I really want Jesus just to solve my problems or I really want Jesus for fill in the blank. You see, in this context here, that was driving people, crowds of people, it says a couple times, great crowds of people to come to Jesus. And Jesus knew that they weren't there with the right motives. Even later in, in Matthew's gospel, near the end where Jesus has done almost all of his ministry, he still sees actually what's happening and that the, the people around him, the people that were following him were actually still rejecting him for who he was. In Matthew 23, verse 37, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who, sent, who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is like, there's nothing more that I want than for people to come to me, to come to me in authenticity, to come to me because of who I really am, not just for my stuff, not just because I can heal you, not just because I can take all your problems away, but come to me for who I am. And he says 
here specifically to Jerusalem, but we also see it to the massive crowds, you just wouldn't come. You wouldn't do it. You were physically there in proximity, but you wouldn't actually come with your whole heart and your whole soul and your mind. Man, what a challenge to me. Why am I coming to Jesus? In what way do I come to him with my own expectations and my own desires before actually coming to him saying, who are you? And so Jesus' response to this is, it's interesting again, and it's not something that's new, but Jesus' response is that he actually, he withdraws. Okay, remember we talked about this in, I think it was chapter one, where it talked about these large crowds coming, his popularity growing, and now here we have again, huge crowds are coming, right? Massive crowds, so much so that he tells the disciples to get a boat ready, because if the crowd is going to push him, he doesn't want to like tread water and preach at the same time, okay? So he's like, get a boat ready, and this massive crowd comes, and what does he do? He actually withdraws. He says, okay, this is actually a moment where I need to step back from all, that, all the action, all the hype that is going on, maybe even just the busyness of what it means to be, you know, a healer and a rabbi, and he pulls back. And, and in Mark's gospel, so for those of us who are regularly studying this, in Mark's gospel, this is like a, this is a note for us. This is a marker for us. These, these times where Jesus actually withdraws, like in chapter one and in, and in other scenes along the way, those are actually moments of great significance. Okay, Mark is, Mark is telling us this for a specific reason because Jesus is entering into this moment of withdrawal for a purpose of preparation purpose of preparation to be used by God in a, in a significant way. And, and I want to suggest that this idea of withdrawal, or, or we've talked about it here, of silence and solitude, or this experience of being in the presence of God, like kind of laying, setting things aside that scream for our attention, and focusing our attention solely on God, are also moments in our life where God can significantly speak to us. Where God can even significantly prepare us for a moment, some sort of moment that's in our lives. And often in, in many of our lives, in, in our Christian lives, and I'm, I'm broadly stroking it here, okay? I may not be speaking to you individually, but for many of us, I think we've gotten really used to the small drip of our access to Christ. Like a tiny drip of little moments. Whatever that is, whether it's little scripture, devotional times, moments of prayer, and, and don't get me wrong, those small moments are valid. But for some of us, the experience of drinking in the word of God for an extended season, for drinking in the, the presence of God in, in silence before him is something that is completely foreign to us. It might as well be a foreign language. We have never done it before. And I want to invite you into that. If you're a believer, I want to open your eyes. I want to, to remind you that there is an experience that you can have when you cut out all the noise and you bring your focus solely onto Christ, his word, listening to the spirit, or in conversation with God. 
And, and the reason that I kind of am speaking so passionately about this is I just, I mean, I just had my own moment in this last week where I had the opportunity, I took part of my day off, and um, Matt Bauman and I are actually doing this challenge where we're reading through the Bible in 60 days, okay? So I'm, and I'm behind, okay? And so is Matt. We're behind, but we're, we're kind of like powering through it. And so I took like a few hours and I read slash listened to the book of Job. Okay, I don't know if you've ever done this before. Take, take your phone, put it on focus mode, okay? So nothing else is coming in, no emails, no texts, and put on the Bible app and then listen to a reader, read the scriptures, but have your Bible in hand and follow along. Okay, I don't know if you've ever done that before. And I was able to sit there and listen from front to back, from beginning to end, the book of Job. Now listen, the Job is not like the pick-me-up book of the month, right? It's not like the joy book, okay? But I'm just telling you, taking those, I don't know how long it took me, maybe a few hours, and just deep dive listening to the word of God was an experience that I can only say, please do it. You will get close to God. When you take moments of silence and solitude and you listen to God, you will experience something that you maybe have never experienced before. Some of you probably know what I'm talking about. Others of you have never done this before. And so in small bits, just like Jesus, in the midst of the chaos and the busyness of all of our lives, we have to find ways to carve out time to just listen to God. Whether we fully take in what, what we're seeing or experiencing or not, that's a whole other question. But come before God and say, God, will you show me yourself in these moments of silence? And so Jesus here withdraws, which takes him then to this moment of preparation, which is the calling of the 12 disciples. And we just read over that, that he, it says in verse 13 that he went up on the mountain and he called to him those that he desired. Jesus does something that is really different from what people would have practiced then. Okay, the way that um, disciples came to follow their rabbis was not how Jesus is doing it here. Normally it would have been like, you know, going to like a job fair or something, or it would have been like selecting a school that you want to go to of some sort. Like you got five different rabbis and you're like, I think I want number three, okay? That was the normal run-of-the-mill disciple following a rabbi. But what does Jesus do here? Jesus completely reverses it. He does it the opposite. Jesus is like, I got all these people Probably, you know, if you're following the narrative, thousands of people out here. I'm going to withdraw now with this crowd of disciples, which if you look at other gospels, there's probably like 75 other disciples. And then he's like, I'm actually going to, from that group, I'm selecting 12 other disciples. 12 people that I'm going to pour into. And, and when we look at the gospels, we see even within that 12, there's probably another little grouping of like two or three Right, two or three disciples that he was going even deeper in. And so Jesus is doing something totally different here. The, the NIV and the ESV, which I'm reading, says that he appointed, but the Greek says that he made 12. That's what the Greek is saying, that he made 12. And some commentators are thinking that Mark is probably using like Genesis 1 creational language. He's wanting the reader to think that what Jesus is doing here is brand new. He is creating this new kind of entity of disciples who will follow their rabbi, their teacher. 
So Jesus is doing something totally new. And, and what we see here again, and this came up a few weeks ago, is that Jesus is the one that's doing the choosing. Jesus is the one who's leading the way. The disciples are not the ones that are choosing Jesus. He is actually choosing them. They respond back. It says that they came to him, right at the end of verse 13. It says that they responded to his calling, but he is the one who's making the first move. And this is, this is the way, this is the nature of God and the way he works. He is the one who moves first. 1 John 4, 19, when it comes to love, it says this, we love because he first loved us. So Jesus is the one who always goes first. John here makes it really nice and clear that, man, the only reason that we can love is because we've experienced the love of God. And so God, and here in the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who is leading the way. He, the disciples did not do anything they weren't the ones who kind of initiated this. They didn't get themselves like in just like a perfect alignment, but it was Jesus who reached out and said, I want you. Jesus who was, made the first move. But not only did Jesus make the first move, Jesus actually, in this moment of calling, had a specific desire. Jesus had a specific purpose for his calling to discipleship, and it was one of relationship. You can see, look again, if you have the Bible in front of you, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. Jesus wasn't just like, he just didn't need some, some guys to run logistics on his healing ministry. He didn't need just some guys to run security, you know. Although he might have needed security. Maybe they did do that, I don't know. But He's calling people, specifically the 12 disciples in this story, to come to them because he desires to be with them, to be in relationship with them. And this is what makes Christ's ministry and, and God even so unique. James Edwards, in his commentary, writes this, The simple prepositional phrase, to be with him, has atomic significance in the Gospel of Mark. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. It's a who before a what. And this is important for all of us to see that the discipleship that Jesus is creating here, this whole new thing, this new kind of following this teacher is a brand new work that God is doing, but it's actually not really. It's a work that God has been doing from the beginning of time. And when we think over the stories, we look back over all the different things that have happened in the Old Testament, you can see this thread of relationship with, between God and mankind over and over again. So you look to the, the Garden of Eden and you see right from the beginning at creation, what does God want? God's not just creating these people so he can kind of like watch them. He comes down to be with them. He comes down to walk and to, to experience life with them, relationship. When you study the book of Exodus and you see this people, this, this nation of Israel, over and over again, especially when he wants to release them from their slavery, he says, these are my people. These are my people. Again, it's not like a possession. It's not like this is my microphone. It's like, these are my people. 
It's like if you said, this is my child, or this is my wife, or this is my friend. It's not a possession. It is a commitment. It is a relationship. It is a bond. David, in the Psalms, is trying to communicate this over and over again through poetry. Listen, in Psalm 68, this little section, starting at the end of verse 4, he says, Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. God is actually intimately aware of all us. He's intimately aware of the brokenness of the world and what's his longing and his desire is to bring people into relationship with others and also with him. The Apostle Paul in many different ways and with many different images, tries to get us to to understand this imagery of relationship. And in Ephesians, he gives us the instruction on marriage and and how, you know, men and women are to be together in relationship, this, this most intimate bond of human relationships. And then he says this in chapter 5, verse 32, when talking about marriage, he says, this is a profound mystery. And if you're Married, you'd say amen to that. You're like, I don't know how this works, right? Two people coming together. This is a profound mystery. But what's the real mystery? The real mystery is that I'm talking about Christ and the church. This kind of intimate relationship bond that we experience in marriage in an earthly way is a, is a shadow. It's an image of actually God's love for his people. His desire to be in Deep, intimate, close relationship. Single, married, widow, child, doesn't matter. God wants to be in a relationship with us in a deeply intimate way. And this is the type of followership, this is the type of discipleship that Jesus is calling them to so they will actually experience it and and kind of take it from there forward. But all of these examples, they're still hard for us to grasp. Almost all of them are hard for us to grasp. We kind of get them a little bit, but they're still hard for us to grasp. And that's why we were given the, the Gospels themselves, so that we could look at Jesus and see, okay, what does this really look like? Because we see it in the children of Israel, we see it in the Old Testament stories, but man, those are like distant, and when we read them, they're like confusing, and, and they're hard for us to take in. And so God says, okay, here's the greatest example I'm going to give you of my desire to be in relationship with you. It's Jesus. I'm actually going to come down and be among you and show you what it's like for a, a human being to be in flesh, someone who is God himself, to be in full relationship with others. And so we have the person of Jesus. In John 14, says this in verse 6, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, so there's your, there's your defining line from Jesus himself. And then in verse 9, he says this, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So Jesus says, Philip, do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what God the Father is like? 
watch me. Look at my life. I am the perfect representation of God the Father. So when we wonder about what is God like, when we wonder about does God really want to be in relationship with me, the thing that we should be looking to is the person of Jesus. And so we're seeing here in this text again this morning that Jesus says, you disciples, I am calling you to follow me. So this brings us to the last section where we actually have the names and we're left with the 12. These 12 disciples um, and all that comes with them. And just a couple of things that we see in verses 16 through 19 that I want to bring out just in the last few minutes here is this. Here's the first one. That Jesus wasn't afraid to invest in a limited amount of people. Jesus was not afraid to invest in a small group of people. Because here's the truth. Jesus could have found a sweet spot on a mountain somewhere, found a nice hill, and he could have just taught thousands of people every day until he was crucified. Three years of just like solid teaching, you know, drinking honey, tea, getting that vocal cord going, and just more teaching, more teaching, thousands. He just like, crank it up, boys. Bring him. Just bring him here. Thousands, thousands. He totally could have done that. Why not? He specifically chose a small band of brothers in this case. He specifically chose a small grouping of people. And like I said, intimacy with three, discipleship with just the 12, And then as we read the Gospels, there's even this larger group of like 70-ish people, men and women, following him. He specifically hones in on these 12 people. And this is why I titled this message, Atomic Discipleship. Okay, it came from that quote that I read before. But this idea that the work that Jesus does is, and that the work of the kingdom actually is a small work. And if you know anything about atomic energy or the atomic bomb, you know that like it's this, okay, I don't even know exactly what's happening. Okay, I'll just tell you the truth. But I do know this. It's stuff happening on a small level, okay? It is small stuff that is creating a massive impact. It is creating a massive amount of energy from a small bit of whatever is happening there. And when the scientists were starting in on on nuclear energy and nuclear bombs, they didn't even know what was going to happen. They didn't know if they started this thing, if it was going to be a chain reaction that would just like explode completely around the world until they actually tested this thing. I'm not sure why they took that chance, but they did, okay? And what they discovered was that this tiny atomic level, a huge amount of power could go forth. And that is the exact same thing that Christ is actually doing when he unleashes the kingdom of God. He does not need to start big and massive, okay? And that, that doesn't mean big is bad, okay? That doesn't mean God doesn't work through large churches because Christianity right now, like numerically, is the largest religion around the world, okay? So God does big things. But the way that he works in his kingdom and the way that we should be prepared for him to work in our lives is through small moments, through small work, through small times where the Holy Spirit speaks to us, small lessons. God is willing to actually do that, to build something great in the context of something small. And so we, here we see that 
It's through these little life-on-life interactions, through these moment-by-moment decisions as the disciples are going to follow him and be with him and they're going to interact with him on a day-by-day basis. The Apostle Paul also says this. I don't think I included this in a slide, but he says this in Philippians 4 when talking to the church there. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, okay, Paul, we get it. If there is anything excellent, if there is anything worth, worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, so that's, Paul's got this huge list. He's like, those are the things that I want you to think about. And then he says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, This is the discipleship that Jesus has laid out for us, and this is what I've done for you, Philippians. All these things, all this list of stuff, and what you've seen in my life as you watched me, as you interacted with me, that's what you need to follow. And that's what this atomic discipleship is in the church of God. It is life on life together where we experience the the successes And the failures, where we experience the weakness of what it means to be human, the doubt of what it means to be a Jesus follower, the the chaos of life, living with roommates and living with parents and living, raising kids, all of that is done together. So that in those moments, we don't point to ourselves as the answer. We say together that Jesus wants to do something. In this chaos, Jesus wants to actually do something. And he wants to make disciples right there. And that's what he's saying with this list of 12. He's like, I'm committed to you. Are you committed to me? Let's go on this journey together. But he also says this, the second thing and the last thing here. It's this, that Jesus wasn't afraid to invest in people who didn't believe in him. Okay, so the first one was Jesus wasn't afraid to invest in a limited amount of people. But the second one was that Jesus wasn't afraid to invest in people who didn't believe in him. So look at this list of people. Look at the list of names. You can see there's a zealot in there, right? Someone who wants to bring about a revolution, preferably through violence. Okay, that's their preferred means. Like, let's just burn some stuff down and change the ideology of this region. You've got tax collectors, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. People who are just really after money. And then you've got Judas, verse 19. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, many of us know Judas because we know about his, his end and his... Um, his choice to betray Christ. But what else do we know about Jesus, uh, Judas? We don't actually know a ton, but one thing we know is that in John 12, it makes clear that either the disciples knew or Jesus knew at some point that Judas was like stealing money out of the bags. So he was the money guy and they were like, Judas, where is it? There's 10 bucks missing again. Where is it? And he's like, eh, I needed it for something. And so they knew that Judas actually the whole time, all three years, he's pulling money out of there. He's making bad choices. He ultimately betrays Jesus. And his demise is his death, his own suicide. And yet the whole time, right from here from chapter 3, Jesus invites him in. Jesus says, I want you to come in the group of 12. 
Does Jesus know that Judas does not believe that he's the son of God? Absolutely. And probably some of the other guys in there don't believe it either in the beginning. We know that even a lot of them, by the end of the, by the time Jesus is resurrected, they still don't believe. They're still doubters. They're still like, are we sure about this guy? And here in that moment, Jesus says, Judas, I'm inviting you into this circle to come be with me. I know you don't believe who I am, and I know you got a lot going on in your life. Follow me. Jesus actually practices this radical hospitality, this radical um, expression of love and investment in someone else who has no desire to even believe in what he's standing for and what he's building around him. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? That's kind of wild. That's not something that I'm like top of my list looking for, and yet it's actually a part of the discipleship process for us as believers. Now listen, in our church gathering, we're called to protect those who are vulnerable. We're called to, as a church, leadership in the church is called to to guard the flock. And so like there's all kinds of like um, things that we do to protect ourselves, but what we see here is that Jesus practices radical love to people who don't know him and who maybe even reject him. And he practices what he teaches himself. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. He says this, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All that Jesus is doing is putting into practice what he teaches. He is loving the enemy. And not only is he just like loving them in word, he's actually bringing them close. This love for those who are outside even of the the family of faith is something that is totally radical and extreme. And it might be something that we're uncomfortable with or not used to, but it's here. When we watch Jesus, we see that it's here. And so Judas Iscariot, remember this is written after Jesus is gone, this is written decades later when the, when the disciples and Mark could have been like, you know what, I'm just going to put down 11 because I know that Matthias gets put in later. So maybe I'll just put Matthias' name and we'll just like forget that the whole Judas thing happened, you know. He doesn't. This is a record of what happened. That Jesus brought Judas in, the one who would betray him. And Jesus loved him and Jesus called him to follow So, let's end with this. Following Jesus is what we are called to do. And just this week, I was in here and um, the elevator repairman came. Okay, we have an elevator here. We don't use it, but he came, you know, just to look at it and uh, make sure that it's all in good working order. And it is. If you need to use it, it does work well. But as we were chatting, we were just talking about church, and he was talking about different churches that he goes to as an elevator repairman. And he talked about how he grew up in the Catholic church, and he was like, man, now, now that I've seen all this residential school stuff, he was like, there was a lot of hurdles already, you know, like just believing in God, and there was all this kind of like major hurdles to, but this one, the res- residential school, that was it. I'm done with the church. I'm done with the Catholic Church, all that. And so I'm, I'm just listening. We're just conversing. And um, he 
he kind of was, was talking about how he'd maybe like to go to another kind of church and, you know, kind of, I think he said, like, our kind of church. I don't even know if he knows what we are, you know, but <laughs> he was like, something like this. But he, he ended with this statement. He's like, I just want to be with good people. I just want to be with good people. And I didn't want to burst his bubble on the spot there because we had about 30 seconds. But what we see here and what we're going to see over and over and over again and what we're seeing actually here is those good people don't exist, man. Those people don't exist. There might be nice people, okay? And I hope we're nice. You know, if you're a visitor here, I hope we're nice, you know, and that we're like kind to you and stuff. But the, the good people, they just don't exist. We might, we might be able to do good things and, and show some sort of care and empathy. But just like Augustine said, we are all people who have disordered loves. We all have disordered loves. There are things that we get wrong. They might just be like a 0.5 fraction or they might be like 15% wrong. But we have disordered loves. And so part of what we do together here is try to put these things into practice, that we are following Jesus. And when we come together in our struggle and in our difficulty and in our disbelief, we rally together around Jesus. And like A.J. Swoboda says in his book, we all need a group around us that believe for us when we struggle to believe on our own. We all need that. And so the calling for us today, the calling from our passage is together, collectively, and in our weakness and in our, our lack of having it all together, we say, we want to follow Jesus. We want to be in relationship with Jesus and experience something that we've never experienced before, be God's people who are sent out from here to love our neighbor and to serve those around us, to serve each other in the community of missional family, but ultimately to follow Jesus. Atomic discipleship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the example of Jesus and his um, amazing love and his radical discipleship. And Lord, would you help us as a church to, to follow him first? and to help each other on that journey. Amen.